0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of The Murderish Podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers. It's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on this bonus episode, which will be a little bit different than what you're used to hearing on the show. In a very early episode of Murderish, I chronicled my personal story when a man followed me home and came into my bedroom. I was 18 years old at the time. That episode is titled, A Stranger in My Bedroom. If you haven't listened to it yet, I recommend that you hit pause, listen to that episode now, and then come back and listen to this. Recently, I reached out to Dr. Shiloh, who is a forensic psychologist and co-creator co-host of LA Not So Confidential podcast. Given Dr. Shiloh's professional background in forensic psychology and her extensive work with sex offenders, I was very motivated to speak with her about my terrifying experience and get her insight on the perpetrator who took so many risks that night over 20 years ago. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with Dr. Shiloh. She was able to provide such great information that had my wheels spinning for days after we talked. One of my favorite moments from our chat was when Dr. Shiloh provided a description of what she believed the perpetrator looked like, the visual image she had in her head, And then hearing her reaction after finding out that his appearance was nothing like what she pictured. One last thing I want to mention is that we do discuss sexual assault during our conversation. However, we don't go into any great detail. Please use discretion. Now, join me as I speak with my friend, Dr. Shiloh, and hear our rehashing of the night a stranger followed me home and entered my bedroom.
1: I was so excited. I it was I think I told you when we talked earlier. I mean I've always been wanting to talk to somebody in your field about the dude who followed me home, came into my bedroom, so you and I will get into that. But I want to get your insight. You shared a little bit of it, you know, when we talked, right. and I know we have so much more to talk about, but I reached out, you know, just saying, "Hey, does anybody know anybody, you know, a forensic psychologist, you know, somebody I can talk to?" And of course, Mike Morford right away oh, right. Yeah, Morph's like, <laughs> duh, you know, Doctor Shiloh, and I'm like, dude, exactly, Doctor Shiloh, course. <laughs> yeah, yes, right in front of my face.
2: <laughs> well, right now, since my primary job is mostly in law enforcement psychology, I think for Morph, it's like on his brain because I did Three Men in a Mystery, and we talked a lot about more of my like decade working in sex offender treatment. Yeah. And so that can also feel like, oh yeah, that's right. That too.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, and then I was like, oh yes. And then I'm like, God, I've been wanting an opportunity to kind of collab with you and yeah, I can see us collabing more in the future. So it was just totally. so perfect, but I guess we should start by, I want you to just kind of introduce yourself. I mean, I know what you do, sure. But is kind of for the audience when this, when this episode comes out.
2: All right. So I've, Dr. Shiloh, and I am a forensic psychologist, which I think when the word forensic comes up in people's minds, they think forensic science, like CSI and DNA and and things like that. And our field would be anywhere where the criminal justice system and psychology overlap. So it is huge. It's a huge area of psychology that has so many fields of expertise and these little niche areas, which is so wonderful when you're going through grad school because everyone has a different interest and wants to do something different and your colleagues go out and do all those different things, which is it was really neat. But I came into that after a, a career in law enforcement and wanted to get my doctorate and what else would have been right up my alley besides something that marries the two because psychology was also one of my undergrad degrees. And fell in love with doing the work mostly, you know, when you're in your program, you have to spend three years doing actual field work and getting out there and seeing what it is you want to do. And my very first internship, part-time internship, uh, was working with the California Department of Corrections and we did sex offender treatment. And I first went into it just wanting to sit in a room to see what they had to say for themselves, just oh kind of gosh. being a fly on the wall. You know, I was still working as a cop at the time. And so for me, I was like, yeah, let me hear all about it because I think it's fascinating. And I did that for a year and then I stepped away from it and I did a an internship in neuropsychology, which is its own fascinating area. Um, it wasn't forensic. I was just working with people who had had some sort of brain damage and had behavioral or emotional problems because of that. Lots of civil stuff. Like if you think of somebody, we had a woman who was a medical professional and she had fallen asleep on a plane and she had an aisle seat and they rammed into the back of her head with the drink cart. Oh, wow. And so she had severe brain damage, couldn't do her job as a medical professional anymore. And so we did assessments with people like that. And then for my final internship, I decided, you know what? I really enjoyed working with the sex offenders, doing psychological assessment as well as treatment and you work in conjunction with probation or parole essentially and what we call the the containment model here in California so if you think of it as a triangle with parole at one of the tips treatment at another tip of the triangle and then polygraphs that they get every 6 months and then the offender in the middle that's sort of how they are contained while they come back out into the community after oh, wow. prison okay So I did that for my final internship with a private company that contracted with probation and parole. And then they gave me a job after graduation. And I continued working in that realm full time, my only job doing that for a decade and left it about three years ago to do something else. But in my private practice, I still do a little sliver of that population really just to keep in the research and keep my feet wet in that area.
1: Right. Oh my, okay. So I have two things I want to go back to regarding some statements you just made, but also you are the co-host, co-creator of a really awesome podcast. Thank called- you. Yes. <laughs> it's
2: called LA Not So Confidential. And it is, if you want to geek out on anything forensic psychology, <laughs> like I just explained and take a, a deeper dive into that, that's what Dr. Scott and I do. He is my closest friend. We met at internship over 10 years ago. And about two and a half years ago, decided to start a podcast because we felt like it was a void in the world of true crime podcasts where professionals in our discipline weren't represented. And we wanted just to be able to bring the realities of some of the stuff that other people were talking about to life and talk about yeah. what it's really like to work in the field.
1: Yeah. I, I love your guys' podcast, and I've met, you know, you as well as Dr. Scott and you guys are both awesome and you can totally see how you guys are best friends too. I get it.
2: It works. It totally works. works. I came up with the idea of a podcast, and he was like, "Nope." And then, like in the next breath, he's like, "Okay, but we'll call it this." I'm like, "All right, I'm on board. I got it." He's playing hard
1: to get. A little hard to get there.
2: A little bit, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I want to go back to kind of your experience treating sex offenders. Number one, you know, my first thought was because as a layperson, my thought is the whole world, you know, myself included, seems to think that. At least to me, it seems that people think that committing sex crimes sometimes is even worse than even murder. Okay. So like we look at these as like the worst of the worst criminals and, and that may be uh, an accurate or an inaccurate assessment. And number two, again, as a lay person, I've always thought, and I have no professional background. Well, these sex offenders have these unnatural urges, these instincts, and there is no cure. There is no treatment. So what do we do with these people? But obviously you have been working for a very long time to treat these people and maybe having a cure is obviously the wrong word, but there is treatment. You are performing you know, those services. And so right. I just am curious, what made you love doing that type of work? Was it a fascination or was it something else?
2: Well, like I said at first, I just thought I'll, I'm just going to hang out and hear what they have to say. I had always really been interested... Obviously in human behavior and then criminal behavior. And then if you put the third layer on top of that of sexual human behavior is interesting in and of itself. Right. Now make that criminal. And for me, that's like the trifecta of interest for me. Once I got to my final internship, I felt I really grew the most there and learned the most with the supervisors that I had who were phenomenal in this field and really took time to, you know, explain and tell us the truths about some things like you know what? Research actually shows sex offender treatment isn't terribly successful. And to hear that, you could really sit there and go, well, what the hell am I doing with my life? Why am I sure. here? Why do I stay in this field at all? But once you kind of come down from that 10,000-foot view and you look at the small differences that you're making for this wide variety of individuals, and when we talk about the like the umbrella of sex offenders, you have... Yes, a very small percentage that have true deviant sexual urges that are even, as we know now with the most latest research, that this is biological, this is embedded. They are born this way. But you have this whole scope of sex offenders that are more common where it was opportunistic or it was situational or it was a myriad of these what we call dynamic risk factors that led to this perfect storm of them making that decision. The Mm -hmm. decision still lies with them. And at the end of the day, the responsibility is there. But when you start really teasing apart their life and what was going on at the time, you can see, wow, I can see these risk factors. And there's actually things we can put into place through therapy that can reduce the risk of recidivism. So of course we're coming in after an offense has already been committed. But my goal there is to help make sure that no further victims are created. And to me that was that was a very humbling piece to say I can be a part of that.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I know it's not for everyone. When I would say like, "Oh, I work with sex offenders. I've had all sorts of reactions, as you can imagine."
1: Yeah.
2: "Oh my gosh, how could you do that?" And my answer is, "I don't know how I can do it, but I can do it." I yeah. maybe compartmentalization is my superpower. Maybe I'm just able to strip away and meet whoever my client is on the level that they're at to be able to make sure we're meeting our goal. you know I know there's people out there that work with victims day in and day out. I don't think I could do that mm-hmm. every day. I would take yeah. that home with me, sure, but we also spend a lot of time on our own self care and how to make sure we don't take some of this home because it could you are susceptible to vicarious and secondary trauma mm-hmm. by learning about these offenses day in and day out and hearing the offender tell you know their story about them,
1: yeah. I respect somebody like you who can do this work, who wants to do this work. I respect it so much because like you said, I mean, I don't think everybody is cut out for it. Probably most people are not, but you know, I've always been fascinated by why are there so many sex offenders? Why? I mean, I call these for lack of a better term, unnatural urges, you know, like the average everyday human being is not going to want to sexually assault somebody, but there are so many people in this world who do and it runs the gamut. And so I want to know why, you know, it just, yeah. why why is it happening so often? It's not, right. it's not a rare occurrence. It's a
2: deviation from normal behavior. So that's yes. what draws us to it. Just like what is a big part of what drives us to consume true crime yes. content. I think You know, there is a myth that it feels like sex offenses have skyrocketed and are sort of rampant in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, Mm -hmm. 30, 20 years. Really, it's a manifestation of the media and how we hear about it. Also, victims are feeling more empowered than ever to come forward. My father worked as a child abuse detective in the 80s and 90s. And You know, I I can tell you that it's not that the numbers have increased of offending that's happening. It's just that it's coming to our attention more.
1: I would agree with you. I've had this conversation with a close family member who was a victim of, you know, sexual abuse as a child. And uh, it's been going on. It's been going on. And I, like you said, I don't think the number of occurrences have gone up. It's just that we're more aware, more people are talking about it and things like that. So gosh, so fascinating. I could talk to you about that forever. So obviously I wanted to bring you on so we could talk a little bit about one of my earliest episodes where I just kind of chronicled a situation where when I was 18 years old, I believe the police think their theory was that I was followed home from the grocery store, which is located directly across the street from my house. When I was 18 years old one evening and a guy followed me home, long story short, when I walked into my bedroom, there he was. He was in my bedroom and I confronted him and you've listened to the episode and you and I've talked about it and I've got your talking points here, but feel free to start wherever you want. I mean, I really just wanted to bring you on with your expertise to have an intelligent conversation about this and get your insight and answer any questions you might have too.
2: Well, and thank you because this, you know, obviously is a, a very personal story and to go back and continue to explore it. I think it's really healthy to even help process it this many years later too. Yeah, I think what's really interesting at the top of this and sort of connecting the reason that I'm here a little bit is that there isn't actually a sexual element to the story that we right. know of, right? right? But I think we can reach a little bit and say, well, right. then what the hell is this guy doing right. if it wasn't sexually motivated? But I mean, I can be open to the fact was... This going to be, you know, some sort of burglary. Was it? Well, voyeurism is still has a sexual element to it. I, I really do think there's obviously some paraphilia going on here, and a paraphilia is really just kind of a clinical term for a deviant sexual interest.
1: Hmm.
2: Actually, let me back that up. More, the criminal types of paraphilias are more deviant, hence the reason we criminalize them. So, the rarest of the rare would be pedophilia, where somebody is truly sexually attracted to a prepubescent child, and then sexual arousal to violence against somebody against their will. So of course, there's like BDSM relationships where it's all consensual. And that's technically not that rare. But any unusual sexual interest is sort of the big term for paraphilia. And then you get to the more rare ones, you get to the ones that are criminal. So voyeurism Somebody like if if his aim was to like sneak and hide in your closet and like watch yeah. you undress, that could have been a form of voyeurism. Even if like he wasn't planning on touching you or whatever, still creepy as hell and yes. awful to think about. But there are different levels, and as you said earlier, you know this is all about really sexual urges, and it very much is, especially when individuals cross over into criminal acts, because that means they haven't been able to contain their urge or their impulse to engage in this behavior any, any longer. And sometimes, you know, when we talk about escalation and building up to being a little bit more bold and brazen. That's just the inability to be able to push those things aside that even if other people had an inkling, like, or a thought in their head that they would be able to push it aside and be like, no, that's wrong. You know, I can't create a victim just right. because I'm quote unquote into this, you know, type of sexual activity. So I think that's huge to look at with this person because what sticks out to me is how incredibly brazen he was in a number of ways. Yes. I think the first, I'm sure people have followed people out of intrigue or interest, maybe driving to see where they're at or whatever, but for him to follow you completely into an apartment complex that is gated, you know, that's a sense of privacy right there that is already this barrier or this boundary that he's crossed. But what really stuck out to me is sort of the first time was you're still sitting in your car and he gets out and walks in front of your car. Yes. Like, it, was that the first time you really noticed him? I mean, you knew someone was sitting in a car, right?
1: Yes. So it's the first time I got creeped out by him. I noticed somebody just before that, as I was checking my mail, They were sitting in the driver's seat of a car. It was the Lexus. Um, I remember the color. And it was just a person. It was a man, but I couldn't really see him because his headlights were on. But that's kind of what, I don't know if I was like irritated or just kind of like looking behind me like, dude, why do you have your lights on me? You know, When people shine their lights on you. You're kind of like, can you turn those off? So I kind of like, like looked, yeah, I kind of looked away from my mailbox and was like, oh, okay, he's got his lights on. I don't know what he's doing, but just thought he was a resident it was later that I put two and two together that that was likely the guy who then when I parked my car, he walked right in front of my car. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're talking just a few feet and staring, like glaring into my windshield. And I, it was not normal. It made me feel weird. I, I just thought it's not that normal. Like, Oh, I, you know, he looks over and sees me in my car. And we just meet eyes. And then it's over. It was very creepy. And of course, I ignored all red flags. So right, I got out of my car right. and the rest is history. But yes, that was the first time I really,
2: really noticed
1: him and got creeped out by him.
2: Now, this didn't occur to me until right now when that incident was taking place where he walked in front of your car. Did you think like,
1: God, did I cut this guy off on the road or is like he pissed at me for something? That's a really good question. And I'm going to answer that. I don't have any memory of Wondering why you would be staring at me. What I remember is just the feeling of, wow, that was more than just a normal stare. What is up with this guy? You know, but I don't remember wondering what made him do that.
2: Well, and it is. It's incredibly bold for because if we try to step into his mind a little bit, if his goal is to follow you home and possibly sexually assault you, why the heck would he want to be seen by you so brazenly? And to me, that's hugely indicative of him just not having any control left. Yes. Yes. I mean, walking in front of your car, making eye contact, the impulsivity of, oh my gosh, I have to see her face or I need her to see me mm-hmm. is really, it's at that tipping point where he's kind of past the point of no return. Like he's all in.
1: Yeah. I found that to be so fascinating when you said that, like one of your first, you know, words that came to mind was like impulsive. And that's exactly how it fell. And then the second act of impulsiveness, which just further kind of proves your point, was when I got out of my car, he's walking ahead of me just a few feet. He goes and stands at that door. And I, I didn't know the people who live there, but I kind of knew in my mind, he probably doesn't know them. And in my mind, it's like, I don't want to say I was smart enough, but I was intuitive enough at that point to go, I bet you he's just standing at that door pretending he's going to knock. Just to watch where I'm going to be walking to, and sure enough, and uh, you know I describe in the episode, when he's standing at the door, here's the front door, you know to his left is a hedge that's tall enough to where he can't see over it, right So at a certain point when I keep veering this way and he's standing right here, he can no longer see me because of that hedge. And so I kept walking, and then I describe in the episode, my instinct was Jamie you need to turn around and see if he's walked away from the door and peeked around the hedge to see where I'm walking, to prove my point that I thought he was trying to walk to see where I was walking to, which apartment. Right. Because he lost sight of you. He lost sight of me. Exactly. And I think that that was his second major impulse was he was cool with walking around that hedge and knowing that I could turn around any moment and see him. And there he was just standing there staring at me. And it's, the craziest thing is that I knew at that point that I was in trouble. Like I knew, oh my God. I mean, I had chills talking about it right now. I remember thinking, holy shit. I still have several feet to get to my apartment. I have to unlock the door. He's going to run right now. I just thought like this dude right. is It's up. Run. Here it comes. It's, it's, that's it. Yeah, this is it's it. Happening. It's night time. Is anybody going to hear me? And I, I think I described in the episode, I just walked as fast as I could, but without drawing attention. I wanted to run. But then I thought that's like almost like an animal, you know, in the wild, if you run, they're going to like chase you. Right. So I just thought, no, 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 Jamie, just walk really fast. Don't turn around again, get inside your door. And of course I got inside, unlocked the door and you and I talked about this, but this is where it's like, it's so fascinating for me to look back at 18 year old Jamie. Would I do the same thing today? Probably not, but I just, I got inside my living room. Put the deadbolt on, lock the door and immediately was like, okay, I'm safe. Nothing happened. Right. I'm good. Don't need to tell my mom about it. I, it's fine. I mean, that's the craziest
2: thing. But well, all- it is, especially like you said, you wanted to walk quickly, but not bring attention. Yeah. And I think Jamie now would be like, I'm going to bring all the attention I
1: can bring, yes. especially an
2: apartment complex because there's yes. people around.
1: <laughs> totally. And I, I would be yelling and not, I wouldn't have been afraid to maybe like be impl- just be like, what the? F are you doing? Why right. are you watching me and yelling right. cause a stir? And I know that that could have helped me you know, at the time. Well, and, and there's a
2: phenomenon to that. I mean, again, this was your own experience. This was traumatic. It was, you know, I think you probably at least for a split second thought my life or, you know, I'm at least at risk of some sort of great bodily injury here. So that fits a definition of it being traumatic, just the piece you've already described. And the reptilian part of our brain is the part that sends off like all the alarms and whistles to keep us safe. They're for a purpose. Our emotions are there to keep us on track and keep us safe at the end of the day with your kids. Did you ever see the movie, The Croods with the caveman family? No, it was animated. So. It's an animated film. It came out maybe, I don't know, five years ago, but there's this cave family. It's like a mom, a dad, a teenage girl, the grandma, and like a little brother. And their family has survived by being extra cautious and like only going out until, you know, the sun sets and then going back in and setting all these traps. But it's also the story of not ever stepping outside your comfort zone. And you have to, to actually progress and evolve. And that is exactly what our brain has done. Our brain has evolved past the reptilian piece to be able to calm our anxieties when it's not life or death. Mm -hmm. So it's to make sure that, you know, we don't freak out over every little thing that we can come back down to baseline, that we can talk to ourselves and be like, oh man, that was a really close call, but okay, I'm okay now. And it does us a disservice sometimes because it also, then we rationalize away serious situations too. And, and that more quote unquote evolved piece can take over and actually quiet too much the reptilian piece like it did for you that night, once you got behind that
1: door and didn't even mention it to your mom. Never mentioned it once. And everybody's like, Jamie, what the F? (laughs) And I just, I say, Jamie, what the F? But that's what makes it like even so much more fascinating for me today to go, that is a true, it, it shows you, you never know how you are going to react to a traumatic situation like that. You just don't know. And then of course, when he came into my bedroom, and I confronted him. I never would have thought I would have reacted that way either. So nothing about it makes any sense looking back on right. it now. But I definitely had a false sense of security. You know, I felt you know right when I walked into my living room, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I'm in my cozy yeah. little apartment with my mom. The door's locked. I mean, if the dude's out there, he's just gonna have to stay out there. He can't get in. I mean, right. I didn't even remembered that I had my sliding glass door cracked open. Or nor if I did remember, if if I think I would have gone in. Lo- I just don't know.
2: Well, you're also a teenager, and teenagers don't have fully developed brains. So, <laughs> you know, they're not yeah. functioning on the level that, you know, even somebody in their mid 20s, late 20s are, where their cognitive functioning is fully taking all of this in. So it's very limited. The executive functioning of,
1: especially like future consequences for teenagers, just really isn't existent. Yeah. And actually, that reminds me when you and I talked earlier, I mean, I was totally of the mindset back then that I was sort of invincible, that people who were killed, you know, in a home invasion or anything that just happens to people on the news. That doesn't happen to me. That's, that's impossible. You know, it's just this far away concept that you think like, I will never be murdered. I will never be sexually assaulted because that just happens to people I see on the news or in Uh books, you know, it's the it's kind of stupid and silly you know to think about but i really truly had a teenager's brain and that's what i thought and also i had never been through a major trauma before that and so i was living sort of maybe in this bubble and you know
2: yeah yeah and that's what we want to obviously instill a sense of safety for our children yeah but also not a false sense of safety for dangerous situations and and that's why I think that you know there's that biological piece that we're talking about, but there's also that societal piece that you and I touched on before when we spoke about this of women, you know, need to be polite. they need to not listen to their instincts because that's been drilled into us because that might be perceived as rude to somebody, yeah, and what if we're wrong? And this guy is just lost and He doesn't know where he is. Maybe you know, Jamie. Maybe you should have asked him if he needed something. You know, that's all bullshit. (laughs) Yes. And but it's definitely a subliminal, unconscious piece that was probably ingrained in you as well. You know, to not make a fuss, to not bring attention to what was going on.
1: Yeah, and to not. But you're exactly right. And you and I did talk about that, and it really resonated with me when you said, like, "fucking polite." You know, I mean, I think you even talked about a book that you read, and it's like that is exactly the motto. That I live by now and that I've instilled in my teenage daughter and will instill in my six year old when she's a little older is that you don't have to be polite to everybody. You don't have to please everybody or say sorry when it's not necessary. If somebody so much as sort of invades your personal space, it's okay to give them a signal or, or flat out say, Hey, you know, Kind of uncomfortable right right now. You're you're in my space. Or on the other end of the spectrum, if somebody does something inappropriate, like you yell and scream and kick and you make a fuss and you do what you got to do and fuck politeness. Excuse me. Right. Right. No, like I, I totally live by that motto now. But you're right. Like I think that you know I've always been a little bit sassy. You know, even in my teenage years. But I probably back then didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable. You know, even though I was feeling uncomfortable. Which is
2: completely ridiculous. Now with looking back on
1: it, right? Totally. It's so ridiculous. Who cares? Yeah.
2: And and also like the ability to problem solve is different too. Like you could have just stayed in your car for a few more beats or, you know, cell phones were sort of around them, but there are other options. Like just knowing that you have other options rather than having to walk by this creek to get to your door. You know, I, I think all of those things again, sort of goes back to the executive functioning of, of a fully formed brain. Yeah. But yeah, I I think it's both. It's really both that we're going on there, you know, sort of the more implicit politeness that we as women abide by in order not to make a
1: fuss. Yeah. not to be overdramatic and right. you know, all these, you know, words that are used to describe females. But yeah, I think you're definitely onto something. And it's, You know, there could be a whole nother conversation, you know, um, War Baby, you know, our mutual friend who hosts, you know, Murderous Minors podcast, you know, the same way, you know, she deals with murderers who are 18 years old and younger. So, writings that have not been fully formed, and I guess the same kind of goes for them too, which is why I'm especially fascinated in those types of murders too, because just like me as a victim who... Didn't have a fully formed, you know, brain and made some really strange decisions that night and ignored red flags. Then you've got these killers who are kids, and how much of their un, you know, formed brain came into right. play as a reason for them murdering somebody? I mean, oh, yeah. You know, There's a whole
2: whole specialty of juvenile sex offenders, and right. that that was in my area. I worked with adults only, but you know, talk about decision making, impulsiveness, teamed up with adolescent hormones, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong there that can be a disaster. And I think we're seeing more of that with really young people being put on sex offender registries for a mistake that they made, or, you know, getting accused of distributing child pornography when they are sexting a picture of themselves to someone else. You know, it's just, it's a silly mistake that any of us could have done. They just have the technology to do it in a different way now.
1: Yeah. So yeah, looking at juvenile crimes is a whole different ballgame. Oh yeah, I can I can imagine. So then yeah, I mean obviously after I got into my apartment, talked to my mom about what I bought at the store. <laughs> I was like described. I think hey, yeah. mom, guess what I thought? And the funniest thing is just totally off topic, but you and I are the same age, but maybe you'll remember these. And we're kind of from the same area. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, so back in the day when I think that my mom reminded me, she's like, Jamie, don't you remember what drove you? Like what motivated you to go to the grocery store that night? I'm like, no, I have no idea. She's like, they Stater Brothers was selling these stupid, like wedge flip-flops that have like a foam. Oh my <laughs> gosh!
2: Yes. <laughs> or they'd be layered with like rainbow colors. Yes.
1: Or <laughs> Oh my God. I mean, I look at them now and I'm horrified that I right. actually wore those, but my mom's like, Jeannie, I thought they were so ugly. I mean, turns out my mom was cooler than me back then, I guess. So totally. She knew she knew they were not cool. But that's but, very um, Southern California too. <laughs> so so Cal. And I guess that Seder Brothers was selling them at the time and I went to oh, street to buy them. Must have pair, been great like, quality oh. then. <laughs> I guess so. I guess they sell them at Seder Brothers for probably three ninety nine. <laughs> but yeah, so then you know, of course I described my mom, you know, we had a quick conversation and looking back on it which you and I may or may not have talked about now, you know, then it all came back. He could hear everything that me and my mom were saying. I didn't know it at the time, but you know, my mom had her window open, but her blinds closed, her vertical mm-hmm. blinds. So where he was standing was just feet away from my mom's window. So oh. certainly, yeah. So he not only could hear everything where you were saying, but I think more importantly, he knew I wasn't in my bedroom. And that you had let your guard down. You yes, weren't telling exactly. your mom about it. Yes. Yes, which I so appreciate you saying that because that's not even something that I thought of. It's like in his mind, he's like, "Oh, she's not even talking about me." So right. you know, why don't I'm going to go into this girl's bedroom and she's not even going to know? You know, she's yeah, not for to him it, from- it
2: lowered the risk of yeah, the situation gosh. and what he was about to do.
1: Yeah, I had never mm-hmm. thought
2: about that. Wow. Yeah, that's. But that's you're really- so right. Eerie part of it that he's—it is
1: so creepy. But he was definitely—he could—I know for a fact—he could hear everything. And then, you know, I'm gonna guess that I was in my mom's room for no more than you know a couple minutes, and just walked into my bedroom. And right when I walked in, I noticed the first thing I noticed out of the side of like my peripheral—I could before I walked in—I could see that my vertical blinds were swinging softly back and forth. And I'm like, oh I wonder if that's the wind. I mean, it wasn't really a thought. an important thought. And then next thing you know, I see the top of a head kind of like going like this coming into the room, coming into my bedroom. And it was a sliding glass door. And I just, I don't know. I mean, it takes the brain. It took me a moment to realize what is going on. Absolutely. (laughs) Almost like, is there a human being right in front of me or am I tripping. I mean, it was just the weirdest thing. And all these thoughts raced through my head, probably within like milliseconds. And then I confronted him. And, you know, my mom told me later that I just was like, what the F are you doing? Who the F are you? And I use, I think I told you this at one point I said, ew, you know, like <laughs> I was so grossed out. Like you pervert, ew. Right, you know, I'm right. Such a teenage thing to say. It is. <laughs> but I was so grossed out by him. Like, dude, what the F, what are you doing in my bedroom? And I was, you know, raising my voice at him and it was very clear. I'll never forget his reaction. He was startled. Okay, He did not at all expect me to come into my bedroom. His plan was to enter without me catching him, but I walked in right at the right time, unbeknownst to him. And I caught him off guard and he was like, "Uh, uh, um, and he starts like looking around. It's like totally like you see in a movie, like somebody stumbling on their words, like uh, blah blah blah, you know, trying to think of something to say, and then he mutters, "I think my my cat, my cat. I'm just looking for my cat. I think she ran in here." And I'm like, "Your f and cat isn't in here. Get the f out." Whatever I said to him, and so the exchange didn't go on long. And he did. He left. He he left right away. He left the sliding glass door. There was a short, you know, like in bottom floor apartments, it's very common to have like a rectangular shape. Little patio outside of the front of the apartment, and then there's like a little hedge to make it look nice right in front of it. And the hedge is like probably just as tall as the little fence, three feet or so. So he walked out of my slider and must have just jumped the fence and hedge, and then ran out into the common area and he ran away. And I think you and I talked about this. You know, my mom did not know what was going on at first. Right. I had a boyfriend at the time and she reminded me, I don't remember this, but she reminded me that you know, he was so comfortable with me and my family. He would just walk right into my sliding glass door. When he would come to visit, like he wouldn't go through the front door. He's like, Hey, I'm here. And so my mom just, and we were very like playful. You know, we always messed around with each other and made jokes and ragged on each other. So, you know, my mom was studying for the bar at the time. And so she was in her room where she had a desk and she was very intently working on that. And at the same time, she just thought, Oh, it's probably, you know, Jamie's boyfriend, you know, they're just messing around. But when she, heard my tone change, something clicked. And she's like, Oh my God, Jamie's in trouble. And you know, my mom is always packing heat. <laughs> she, <laughs> I love this
2: woman studying for the bar. First of all, is a single mom is already right? badass. And then she's yes. like,
1: coming to the rescue with a gun. She does. Da- oh my God. I love my mom so much. But yeah, she is a little badass and sometimes to a fault, but we won't go there. Um, <laughs> I have some really interesting stories about her. But um, yeah, so she grabbed her gun, which was mm-hmm. already loaded out of her desk, and she came into my room, and I think I probably told her, like, there was a man in here. He went that way. I mean, so she went out the same way as he did. She walked out the sliding glass door, jumped the hedge, and she's got her gun, and it's, it's nighttime, right. and she's just, like, looking for the dude, and he was nowhere to be found. And wow. I didn't think... So I put all this together later that that Lexus in the parking lot was probably him. I'm almost positive, especially... The direction he was walking when he looked at me in the car, like I know that was his car, but I didn't process it fast enough at the time to tell my mom where to run to. Like, oh, mom, he's in the parking lot. He was lot. parked
2: like, over there. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm sure he went and ran to his car and just got the hell out of there. Yeah. But I wasn't. Even, I was just shocked, and I didn't know to tell my mom, "Hey, run toward the parking lot." Nor, I mean, I'm glad that she didn't because that could have put her in danger. I don't know if he had a gun. Probably not, but. I don't know.
2: Sure, sure. Who knows? No, I don't.
1: Yeah, but um but it's I totally different.
2: It could have been different in so many ways at so many yeah. points. And you know, I think at this point when I was listening to your episode, I was like, "Oh my god, what did he look like?" Like that yes. was my first thought and oh. that was a point where I had paused and put it down and the wheels just started turning and I'm like, is this guy? You gotta like tell me what you did before like,
1: you found out. Yes.
2: Before I found out, I I went to stereotypes. And, and here I am, where I have worked with sure. so many different sex offenders that right. they run the gamut. Trust me, it is not just older white guys with Jeffrey Dahmer glasses anymore. It is a right. kid you went to college with. It is, you know, across all socioeconomic statuses, ethnicities, you name it. Professions. I have worked with police officers and firefighters and accountants and very successful businessmen, you know, all convicted sex offenders. But I don't know. I think I pictured, hey, it's it's the Inland Empire. It's probably a white guy. Um, (laughs) Lifted truck. Yeah. Like, you know, I was picturing it like warm night. I'm like, okay, tank top.
1: Yeah. Some
2: shorts, like some skater shoes or something. I don't know. Um, But just kind of this, what you picture, like some... Dirtbag, right? You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you shocked me when I talked to you and tuned back in that that was farthest from the truth. Which, oh my gosh, yeah, I think is a great source of information. Actually, yes,
1: I do too. And I, I don't have the professional, you know, experience that you do, but like I have thought about this many, many times over the year and sort of like built my own pretend profile of like what this guy did for a living. You know, was he married? This, this, and that. And yeah, I mean, I keep saying this is the most shocking part about it, but like I truly believe this is the most shocking part about it, what he looked like, what his appearance, because he drove a nice car. He was dressed in professional office attire, work clothes. I mean, he had a nice pressed white polo shirt. I want to say it was short sleeve with a collar. I know it had a collar and that it was white, could have been a long sleeve button up without a tie though. He had pressed khaki work slacks or what do you call Just khaki pants, you know? Sure. Yeah. And so he was a white man with silver and or like, like white gray hair, short hair, clean cut, medium build, not chubby by any means, but not skinny, just medium build, probably about five eleven to six foot one, maybe. And what's, you know I've worked in a professional environment for eighteen years in a corporate you know corporate America, and he looked like every other man that I have ever worked with in my life right I mean, like he looked like he could have been I started off by saying he looked like he could have been the CEO of a bank, which he does he did he totally could have been and he was like as far as his age, he could be anywhere from like early fifties to maybe mid sixties, but I think he was somewhere in the fifties range. But now that I think about it, and because I've worked in corporate America, you know, I know what men wear on casual Friday. He looked to me like he had a casual Friday outfit on still. Was it on Friday? No. And that's what's interesting is my mom. I didn't know the exact date, but my mom's like, Jamie, this happened on your dad's birthday. So she remembered it because my dad called her and said something about that man was going to hurt my baby on my birthday. Oh, like, wow. yeah, like he was just, that was like the first words out of his mouth. So it happened on my dad's birthday. So it would have been June 12th of 1996. And I've looked it up before. I think it was like somewhere midweek. So it wasn't okay. a Friday. Off the top of my head, I guess I could look it up right now, but I'm almost positive. It was not a Friday. So just
2: with his age range, and I'm guessing like with his dress, we can assume you know he's probably at a job or a career that he's been established yes. at, whether he has... Yes supervisory roles or not, you know, this is somewhere we're just at that age who expects people to still be working, to be doing it because they've, they've been established in their jobs. Interesting because, you know, if we go with the narrative that he followed you home from the market, you know, it's, was he at the market or in the area because he works there or because he lives there? Because those are the two options because of the way he's still dressed, right? Like he was getting off of work, right? And I think you and I both probably lean more towards it's the area where he worked rather yes. than lived. But if you think about how opportunistic and situational it was for him to see you at the market on his way home from work or whatever right. and say, this is the time I'm going to do it. Like, this mm-hmm. is the moment she's the one. I think that we're just guessing. But I mean, it, to me, that really highlights someone who has been thinking about this for a long time who probably has other incidents of it, or this was really the moment that he felt like he couldn't control it anymore. And just, like I said, went all in, but it, I think definitely it was an opportunistic situation because of the way that he was dressed. Who the heck wears a polo shirt and khakis when they're going to go commit
1: an assault of some sort, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah, It's not
2: really like cat burglar
1: clothing. So not at all. Yeah. I don't think he had his running shoes on and I'm pretty sure he's probably wearing like, you know, guys dress shoes or whatever guys wear to a professional job, you know?
2: Right. But what a risk. I mean, think of if, if he works in that area, who's to say he didn't work at a bank where you and your mom could walk into the next day or any business, or if he did live in the area. How does he know that you're not going to show up at graduation? He's going to be there with his daughter. It's just incredibly, there's so much that is so bold about this because I also gather from his appearance a little bit about his status and his job that he has a lot to lose. Yes. I've always thought that. You're right. I mean, this is not somebody on the brink that's like, you know, probably been to prison time and time again that doesn't care anymore.
1: That's what's so fascinating to me is that I have always thought this is somebody's boss. This is somebody's husband, father. Maybe he coached soccer when the kids were younger. Maybe like he's somebody's colleague in an office. And I highly doubt that his golf buddies or people in the office, his wife, his kids have any idea that he followed a girl home and went into her bedroom. I just, that's what's creepy about it is that it's like this thing that he's done that I don't know that people who know him know that he has done. Right.
2: And these types of crimes, if we are going to say, you know, it was leading up to a sexual assault are actually more rare because, you know, like you're, you're basically saying he looks so normal. He looks so average. He doesn't stick out. And that's true. Sex offenders do look normal and average, yet they're usually offending against people they already know, family members and, you know, people they built relationships and trust with, and then are crossing those boundaries. These stranger type offenses, we put that, if I were to assess his risk, if he had committed this crime, we put that at a higher risk level because there is so much more the lack of control going on there because it's not as if they just went along with somebody that they already knew. They're putting themselves out there. They have a lot to lose. They have a lot to risk. You're of course going to say, get the fuck out of my room, as opposed to like maybe someone he knows. It's like, oh, you know... not wanting to hurt uncle Jim's feelings or something. Right, right, right. So it's, we don't have a lot of information because thank God, you know, nothing worse happened. But I think just looking on the surface of the elements we do have, it is a very scary and high risk situation that you avoided.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that because I think you're right. I've, you know, researched enough true crime to know at least that yeah, I mean, these sexual assaults typically are committed against somebody they know, and it is more rare for you know it to just be a total stranger thing, and, and you know, and go into somebody's house. And there's just so many risky things that he did. And like you said, he wasn't the bum on the street. That's like, oh well, I've been locked up a million times, and so let me just see if I could do this. You know, it's like he is a guy who I guarantee had so much to lose. I mean, he truly. Truly just strikes me as, I mean, he just looked like every other professional that I have worked with, college educated person in my professional career. And, you know, going back to the fact that I'm pretty sure it was not a Friday, but he was dressed like casual Friday, but very nice. Then that brings me to, well, you know, I was in corporate banking. You know, I did commercial real estate financing for 18 years. And so I worked with bankers. Well, bankers wear very nice suits with ties every day of the week except for Friday, at least back then. You know, now it's more Yeah. They get away with the no tie, it's a little more casual. But back then it certainly was, like ties, things like that. So it tells me, okay, maybe he wasn't a banker or this or that. Maybe he was a CPA or accountant. Maybe he like you said, was a maybe he was a professor at the University of Redlands. Maybe right. he was a real estate broker. These types of professionals who still do very well in their career and they're very established, but they don't have to wear a full suit and tie every day of the week. Yeah, I think that does narrow it
2: down a little bit for occupation for the time. But yeah, it's just, it's such an interesting dynamic to the whole story. And I think that, you know, the fact that his appearance was so opposite of what you would expect, I bet, you know, even if you don't realize it, that sort of shaped your narrative a little bit more to go, wow, you know, the things that I'm scared of, don't always look the way that I think they will. So and and cons- it, it's those experiences that challenge the way we think things are that then help us to grow and hopefully be more prepared for whatever we yeah. think is going to happen in the big scary
1: world. It's so true. And I think I did learn a huge lesson from it. And I can't tell you the, the number of times that listeners throughout the last you know two and a half years, whenever I first released that episode, I get, it's the number one downloaded episode on my podcast, which is so funny because when I told the story, it was only because I was, I, as I told you on the phone, like I was out of content. I was right. in the of writing a script and it wasn't done, but I wanted to get my episode out on time. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll tell this stupid story about the guy who followed me home. It doesn't end in murder. Nobody's going to freaking care. Right. But let me throw it out <laughs> there. And like, it is the number one downloaded episode on my podcast. And it's the one where most people reach out to me after li- listening and want to make wow. a comment about it or share their own stories, terrifying stories. I got an email the other day from a listener in Australia, woke up in the middle of the night to a man brushing her leg her thigh. Oh and, my goodness. Yeah. Talk about, so, oh my gosh, it's, it's just so freaky, but yeah, I did. I learned so much from it. He looked nothing like what you would picture. And I love that you were honest and shared, like you kind of stopped the podcast and were like, let me paint a picture of who I, you know, what I think this guy looks like before she gets to that part where she describes his physical appearance. And I just, I think that most people would think that I would think that.
2: Right. And I say that I'm sort of playing to stereotypes when I thought that, but I'm actually playing the odds because this is such an unusual situation where first off, it's a stranger crime he looks the way he does and has so much to risk, like he's that anomaly. And so my brain's not going to automatically go to the anomaly. I'm going to go no. to, okay, what is most likely right. if I were to <laughs> to bet on this, yeah. let me paint my picture of this guy. And that's why when I was in training, I went, this is a funny story. When I was a, I was a police cadet. So I was a civilian. I was not even a sworn officer yet. And at my department, I worked in like taking care of the property and evidence. And I sat back with the detectives. I sat behind the sex crimes detectives and they were talking about this training that they were going to go to. And it was FBI profiler, Roy Hazelwood. Oh, wow. And I had read his book and I was like, can I go with you guys? (laughs) And the male detective, his name is Marty. He is so sweet. He was like, it says sworn law enforcement only, but sign up and see what happens. Like, just walk in with us, and I was like, "Yes, I am there. I don't care how much it costs." And oh, cool. sure enough, like, it, I got in. You know, I had my little ID that said the police department yeah. I worked for, and they let me in. And it was like I could just feel my brain expanding. It was the best experience oh, ever. I'm so jealous. And then at the end, I took my book up to Mister Hazelwood and. I told him, I was like, you know, I kind of snuck in here. I'm actually not sworn. And (laughs) he wrote this sweet, like little thing in in my book that I still have. And so what I learned from him throughout his training, he says, you know, I'm going to teach you a bunch of this stuff that we learned from interviewing all of these serial killers throughout the country. He goes, but there are no absolutes. Like you have to understand Mm -hmm. there's always an outlier. There's always someone that is just going to like blow your mind because that's not what the algorithm or what the statistics say. Yes, yes. And I have carried that with me. I don't know how many times I say, like, I can be teaching to jailers in an academy about mental health problems that they'll see in inmates. And I'll tell them there are no absolutes. Like, this is generally what research shows Yes. But you're going to have that thing that just comes out of left field, and you're gonna be like, wait, Dr. Shiloh didn't say this was going to happen. <laughs> this,
1: yeah. Wait, wait, wait. This, the studies are, you know, it's not supposed to be this person, you know, doing this thing. He's supposed to yes. be doing this. over. You know, it's just, it is so fascinating. And there's plausible and probable. And, you know, is it plausible that a serial killer murdered this victim over here? Or, you know, but is it really probable? Probably right. not. You know, right. but there are you know, these crazy serial killers that of course are less common, but they're just fascinating nonetheless. But like you said, you know, human beings are so complicated and there's okay. going to be this one outlier every now and then he's just going to throw everything off. Yes. And that's fascinating too, because then now then it creates a new, it's like, okay, we've never seen this before, you know, and then you build studies around that, I would imagine. And it's also, oh my gosh, FBI profiling. If I could just be a fly on the wall.
2: Right. I know to Be
1: involved in all of those courses. I mean, that would make my life complete. So fascinating.
2: Yeah. That I, I definitely get asked about that the most when people hear forensic psychologists and they want to know the connection between the two, but yeah, there are no absolutes. I think it just take that away from no. everything, you know, question all the research that you hear and all the things mm-hmm. that you hear, especially when we do talk serial killers, I feel like they are such one-offs and so rare, no matter how much we saturate ourselves with the stories. In the big scope of things, they are so incredibly rare that I feel like they are just their own standalone categories in a way. I truly, truly feel that way.
1: Totally. And no serial killer is exactly like the other. You can't just put them in a box and go, okay, well, the Green River Killer and Ted Bundy, or they're these guys and this, you know, they are all, So, unique. They're all case studies, standalone case studies. Yes, yes. So, where I stand now with this whole thing, this stranger in my bedroom, is that, and the reason, you know, that I wanted to talk to you is that I've always had it in my mind that someday I'm going to really put forth an effort to try to find out who this guy was. And I want to do it. I'm not saying I'm going to start tomorrow or, you know, I've taken any major steps, but in the back of my mind, I really, really want to know and I want to know before he dies, you know? Right. So he may be dead now. I don't know, but he would probably be in his like seventies or something. Yeah. Yeah. Seventies ish.
2: I think it would be hard if he doesn't live in the area. I think that would have generated more leads, but I really yeah. do think that there's some leads that you can follow and it's just going to take probably a lot, a lot of legwork.
1: <laughs> Definitely. And you know, you know, it could be described as maybe like a needle in a haystack, but I do go back to, well, you know, people in Redlands, a lot of people who live in Redlands work in Redlands or very close to that area. And it could have been that he worked in Redlands or outside of Redlands and got off the freeway to his house, which was either in Redlands. And he went to that store because that state of others is close to where he lives because there's, you know, like I told you, there's numerous grocery stores all throughout Redlands. And you tend to go to the one that's closest to where you live or where you work so could have been that he was getting off work and he stopped at the grocery store that's closest to his house how creepy is that to think that maybe he lived very close to yeah and but then so then i my mind goes toward okay let's assume he lived in redlands in that area of redlands where i lived kind of on the border of loma linda i know what kind of car he drove at the time so you know there's still people in redlands you know maybe they'll it'll jog their memory and they'll go well you know, my friend's dad drove that kind of car, and he was a professional. I don't know. I know I'm reaching. I th- no, yeah. I think it's possible. I mean, we
2: hear this Possibly. happen all the time. I've already, as you know, like reached out to one lead that hopefully yes. we're trying to like at least generate or stimulate some sort of... because I think a really big piece of it is this can't be the first time he's done something, and if maybe even we look at other similar type of reported incidents in the area at the time. Yes. It might not lead us to him because who knows if he got caught, right? but it could lead us to a general area where sort of like geographic profiling comes in that could narrow down either a place of residence or a place of employment. And I mean, like the second I talked to you, I was like, how do I find a University of Redlands yearbook oh, for nineteen ninety six? Yeah, oh, yeah. You were, like, oh, yeah,
1: texting me. You were like, brr, your your brain, your wheels were spinning. You were like, Jamie, this is this 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 this. Like, I could tell you were already kind of on it, you know, and just wanting to know more. So I volunteer like, to
2: help you when you decide to take that step. Yes. Oh my god, that would be so freaking. <laughs> we're gonna take on this case, right? Let's transport ourselves back twenty years. <laughs> Let's do
1: it. Let's do it. You know, what I found interesting, which I didn't mention to you, is that quite a while ago in. My murderous podcast Facebook group. I got a DM from a woman who said that I think it was her friend or sister. Around the same time, there was a man who snuck into her house and took some of her underwear. And I remember being intrigued by it because there were certain factors that were similar, and it was in the time frame fit. Yeah, I, because. You know, it could have been that he followed me home and he was trying to get into my bedroom, not to harm me, but he wanted to take some underwear. Totally. I just do that, you know, but I mean, I don't know. We'll never know. But, but yes, yeah, so I found that to be interesting. And I remember asking her, you know, would your friend or sister be comfortable talking to me and nothing ever happened of it. But certainly I could go back and look at that DM, and just kind of tra- track that down when I'm ready. But
2: yeah, um, I think that's a really good lead, honestly, because that is a phenomenon that happens and it is a, Mm -hmm. a, you know, another type of paraphilia. And, you know, that may have been it that I, there are truly people out there that have like those kinks that like, I would never hurt someone, (laughs) but man, I got to get my hands on those underwear because, you know, the last pair I stole isn't doing it for me anymore. And they're, they have those same strong urges to do that to where they would take that risk. So yeah. I, I think widening the umbrella and sort of the net of like, okay, what else could this have been is yeah. helpful actually.
1: Definitely. Oh my gosh. Well, I have appreciated talking to you so much. This has been so fun, so insightful. And, um, I could seriously talk to you for days. This is um, very
2: fun. Thank you. And I, you know, again, like just thank you for trusting me to kind of talk about this and yeah. talk through it. And, you know, I, I know sometimes like I said, I compartmentalize well. So sometimes I throw something out and then I'm like, oh, that probably like felt super creepy to consider, but (laughs) thanks
1: for trusting
2: me to have the conversation.
1: I totally trust you. And I wanted you to be very candid with me, even though, you know, some of our conversation topics may be uncomfortable for some people to hear. And I, I get that, but I truly am wanting to explore this. And, you know, I really, really appreciate your insight, given your background and your expertise. But yeah, I think, you know, there's more conversation to be had. And obviously I'll keep you posted on if I do anything more on my end, which I always say I'm going to, But there was a while back, I'm guessing maybe three years ago where I did make a phone call to the Redlands PD and asked if I could get a copy of the report, you know, and of course, just like in a movie or you would hear on any true crime podcast, you call and there was some flood or fire or I don't remember what they told me. And it almost feels like, no, you're, You're lying. Like, come on. Wow. (laughs) There couldn't have been. They said something where they didn't have those records anymore. But I remember speaking to my mom, and she's like, you know what, Jamie? It wouldn't hurt to just go there in person. You know, I'm in Redlands every now and then because I still have family there. Just go there and ask again. I don't remember what they told me the reason was why I couldn't get a copy of the report. Right. It was something like that. But I think it's worth me going in there.
2: Well, and they could have purged it. I mean, it could have been part of a purge that with that classification of what it was. That you know, it wasn't technically a sexual assault, and wasn't. It just depends what they classified it as. Um, yeah. Let me ask around too to see if I know anyone over there, and I
1: appreciate it.
2: maybe get a, a
1: real deal answer for you. <laughs> I know because I remember not being satisfied with the answer that I got, and maybe it wasn't something so dramatic like a flood or a fire. Maybe it, now it's jogging my memory, like you said. Maybe it was like we switch systems and this and that, which means, mm-hmm. can, you know, like that, <laughs> what's that dumb and dumber? Like, Oh, so you're saying there is a chance.
2: A chance. <laughs> right. Right. That that's actually very common. I mean, in the last 20 years, the filing systems have completely changed. Yeah. And I think some data has been lost in some of those, especially some smaller departments.
1: Yeah. yeah. But, um, so possible but yeah, common, maybe, but... maybe
2: the release of this episode will generate you know, someone that hasn't heard it or someone passing it along to someone who yes. lived in the area at the time.
1: Yeah, and that's the hope. I do get messages every now and then from people from my hometown. They're like, hey, I was listening, you know, and this, what you said about, you know, this crime that happened in Redlands sounded familiar. I know I have quite a few listeners in the Inland Empire. So my hope is always that anytime I talk about, you know, this, this stranger in my bedroom guy, like, you know, that somebody's going to just bring bring forth some piece of little Information that might be helpful. You never know. Yep. Hey, before we go, can you say where people can find you if they want to listen to your podcast or find you elsewhere? Yeah, definitely. So Dr. Scott and I release
2: two episodes a month of LA Not So Confidential, and we drop those on Wednesdays, every other Wednesday. We did take June off. We were working on another project, and then Clearly, it's just been crazy town, and <laughs> us yeah. working in, in the field of law enforcement right now is really soaked up a lot of our time. But we will be putting out a new episode July first, and you can get those wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a pretty decent presence on Facebook. If you just look at for LA Not So Confidential there on Instagram, we're at LA Not So Podcast and Twitter LA Not So Pod. And we actually just started a Patreon. We have not had a Patreon. Awesome. We were kind of snobs and didn't want to do it because we were like, we can't put out any other
1: content. We can't. Trust me, that's the biggest. Yeah. Reason why most of us podcasters don't put out a Patreon. Yeah. It's overwhelming.
2: Exactly. But now, since we have been doing Get Vocal live stream sessions, which is a fun platform that you're trying out too, we're actually going to be releasing those live streams on
1: Patreon. So. That is so cool. The I built-in extra content. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you and I, let's talk offline at yes. some point because I also have struggled to, you know, what kind of bonus content can I put out there that I have the time to do? Because it's already, I'm overwhelmed putting out episodes on time for the podcast, right. but I want to give them extra content. Right now, my Patreon leans more toward good like merch packages, But I Perfect. but I know people want more content and I want to give them that. I think that's a really, really cool idea. And I just want to hear how that's going for you and and all that good stuff. Yeah. So, I mean,
2: with the addition of Get Vocal, which is such a cool place to be able to interact live with folks, I feel like we're, we have these other platforms to get more exposure, but also to interact with our listenership. And that's what we love the most of.
1: So we want to know. Your listeners like that too.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, they're definitely like, oh my God, I saw this episode on this and it had the craziest delusional syndrome. Can you cover that? And so we love getting <laughs> ideas from people because yeah. sometimes we're not thinking in the same space that people are and that they want to hear about.
1: Yeah. So, so thank cool. you so
2: much though. I appreciate thank the opportunity. You, Dr.
1: Shiloh. I love talking to you. I'll let you go. I know you're busy, but let's chat offline soon. And um, hopefully we'll be able to see each other in another meetup after this damn I pandemic. hope so.
2: We'll do so safely, but
1: yes, <laughs> we'll have to wait.
2: <laughs> Thank yeah, you, Jamie.
1: All right. Have a good evening. Talk Thanks. to you soon. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks again for joining me on this bonus episode of Murderish. If you'd like more information about the show or me, go to Murderish.com. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. Speaking of Patreon, I just released the video of Dr. Shiloh and my conversation. So head over to my website where there's a link where you can sign up to become a Patreon supporter. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. If you want to connect on social media, head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. I'd love for you to leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.